Wake up. Wake up to the joy that awaits you and me. Wake up to the promise of the life that God has for us. Wake up for all that God has planned for his kingdom to come. Wake up to the hope that one day all evil will be eradicated and all sin will be gone and all evil doing and doers will be gone forever. Wake up, everyone. Leave the sin of this world behind and live for Jesus. Put your hope in him. Follow him. Love him as he has loved you. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 51. Listen real hard here at the beginning because I'm, I'm kind of setting the stage for... Um, what I'm going to be saying, why I'm going to be saying, what I'm going to be saying. So listen real hard. Uh, I asked the prayer team this morning uh, some thoughts from last week's sermon, and it's kind of hard for them to pull them up. And uh, so uh, that's no reflection on them. I, I totally get it. From week to week, it's hard to, uh, to remember things that are, that are said, uh, especially in a sermon. So I'm going to kind of do a little bit of review. Last week, I, uh, I tried to make the case that there have always, there has always been in the heart of God or in the mind of God, two Israels. And uh, though God wanted these two Israels to overlap completely, they never really did. The first Israel, I said, was the national Israel, the political nation that God formed with the Mosaic covenant. And, uh, and then there was the second Israel, which I said was the true Israel. And I told you that the true Israel were the men and women who loved Yahweh, who loved God, and put their faith in him. And within the political nation of Israel, there was the true Israel, which is often referred to as the remnant. The Bible also often calls them the remnant. I went on to say that God eventually did away with the old covenant. It was always conditional. And he made a new covenant with the faithful within Israel. In fact, within the faithful within all the nations. And the faithful within Israel and the faithful within the nation of Israel and the faithful within all the other nations, they became his people. They became his nation. They became his priest. So that God would say, you who are not a people are now my people. And you who are not a nation are now my nation. And this new covenant that he made with all the faithful within Israel and outside of Israel with all the nations of the world, he inaugurated that covenant uh, through or with the Lord Jesus, his servant, his son that he sent us. And he inaugurated that covenant through Jesus' death. And so in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, speaking of the new covenant, he says of the old covenant there that the old covenant became obsolete and that it was passing away. And I suggested last week that the old covenant, if you would, had its finality in AD 70. And I told you, and I even showed you why I felt, and the reason I say that the covenant ended in AD 70 is because God, I say God, using Titus and the Roman Empire, destroyed the temple, destroyed the sacrificial system, destroyed basically so much of Israel uh, through using the, the Roman army, uh, just like he'd used Babylon, just like he'd used Assyria and other nations in the past. 
And then I showed you, or I told you and then tried to show you last week. Now, whether you followed me or not, I, you know, I want to make the point again. I, I shared with you and showed you why I said Isaiah 51 through 53, I think that God is not speaking to national Israel. Now, I realize that, that much of what is said can be applied to the nation as a whole, but I really believe that God is speaking to the remnant. He's really speaking to the faithful within Israel, what, what I call the true Israel or the Israel by faith. And uh, so some of it could be applied to the nation as a whole because the faithful were in the nation. But I was saying to you that this is specifically directed at God's people who have put their faith in him, who follow him. And I said by extension then, Isaiah 51 through 53 is, is more specifically, I think, directed at all of us throughout all the ages who will follow Jesus, who are the true Israel. We talked last week about Galatians and, and how the sons of Abraham are the sons by faith. Uh, and in, in this promise of Isaiah 51 through 53, I think is the promise of the kingdom to come. And even the promise of the kingdom that by now, by our time, has already come. It's a promise of a kingdom that's coming. But in our case, it's a promise of a kingdom that has come and yet will come. I told you that, everybody following? Okay. Uh, I told you last week that chapters 51 to 53, 52 uh, divide into three parts. We're, we're really talking about chapters 51 to 53. We're going to look at chapter 53 next week. But this week we're going to look at chapters. We're going to look again at fifty-one and fifty-two, and and it's organized into into three parts. And last week we looked at the first part, which is just the first eight verses. And in the first part, we said that God addresses Israel three times, and each time that He addresses Israel, He addresses them with a repeat address. He He says. For instance, uh, he says, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. So in each case, he'll have two addresses to them. And, um, and what we said last week, when, when we look at how he addresses them, I told you this is why I believe he's talking to the remnant or to the true Israel and not the nation as a whole. Because these are the things he says. He calls them, he says, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, those who are my people and my nation. Somebody pointed out to me this morning, uh, that second designation there, those who are my people and my nation could apply to national Israel. And, I, and it could, it very well could. I said that last week, I'm saying it again this morning. But the first one, who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, that's not national Israel. That is the remnant within national Israel that seeks after the Lord. Then the third address is you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my instruction. Well, listen, God's righteousness and God's instruction was not in the hearts of all of national Israel. In fact, most of Israel was always rebellious. There was always just this remnant that loved God and followed God. And so I, I suggested to you last week that, um, that this, this is directed at that, that group of people because of what God calls them. He calls them the people who love him, who follow him, who serve him. God gave them three instructions last week if you were here. You can go back and, and, and listen to this, but don't forget your roots. My kingdom is coming quickly and do not fear the rejection of people. That was last week. So this week we come to the second part in these chapters and, and this is a request from God's people and then an answer from God. 
Now, again, before I look at the text, just one way, my wife says I repeat myself, and I'm sorry if I'm doing that, but I just, I feel like I just need to make this clear. I'm suggesting that what I'm going to share with you now is directed not at the nation per se, but at God's people within Israel who love him by faith. And, it, and consequently, it's directed at us. This is for us, all right? I believe. So here we go. Here's the question that they, they ask of the Lord. Verse nine, wake up, wake up, arm of the Lord. Clothe yourself with strength. It's not really a question, it's more of a request. Wake up as in the days past, as in generations long ago. So here we have a faithful believer calling on the Lord and he says, Lord, we're looking for that salvation that you've promised. Now do it, do it like you did it before. In other words, they say, wake up, God, do it again. Bring that salvation that you promised. And it kind of, isn't that our cry too? I mean, I know it's my cry. I, I, it all, there's always within my heart this cry, God, do it. Do it again. Come, send the Lord Jesus. Come and save us like you've promised. Come bring the eternal kingdom that we're all waiting for and looking for. I mean, it's my cry. And it's the cry of this faithful believer says, God, do it again. Bring your kingdom that you've promised. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm convinced of something. I'm convinced that we as 20th, 21st century believers, we think that in the Old Testament, it was just one constant miracle all along the way. You know, God was just always doing miracles. He really wasn't. He was doing miracles only at given times within, within the work, his working with his people. I, I was reading last week in my devotions through uh, the book of Judges, and there's the story of Gideon, right? And you remember the angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon while he's in a wine press hiding out from the Midianites. And he says, this is what the angel says to him. He says, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Here's what Gideon says to him. Please, my Lord, if, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. If you don't understand what Gideon's saying is basically this, God, we don't see any of the miracles that we used to see. Where are all the miracles that our ancestors told us? Why are we in this predicament? Where is your salvation? And, and so, so Gideon is basically saying, Lord, we just, you don't see it. When are you going to save us? And, and, and so we long for the Lord's return. We long for the Lord to, to, to save us, to raise the dead, to, to change us into the image of Jesus like his glorified body will have and make all things right. We long for that. Now, the faithful believer continues in the Isaiah passage. And, and remembering the past, this is what they say. Wasn't it you who hacked Rahab to pieces, who pierced the sea monster? Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the seabed into a road uh, for the redeemed to pass over? Now, you say, what does all that mean? So remember the, the, the request is, Lord, do it again. Do it again. And so here the faithful believer is reminding God of what he's done in the past. Now, the word Rahab can mean a number of different things. It can mean pride. It can mean sea monster. It can mean, it can refer to Egypt and Egypt's gods. Now, I, I think that, that Isaiah or God is using the word Rahab here, or Isaiah is writing this this statement as, as if it's Egypt. The reason I say this is because you go on and it says, talks about them crossing the Red Sea, right, on the dry, dry bed. So I think he's talking about this. And so here's what, here's what this faithful believer is saying. God, wake up and save us just like you saved 
Israel, just like you saved God's people years ago when you brought them out of Egypt. God, do it again, just like you did back then. The faithful believer continues. And God, when you do that, when you save us, verse 11, the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. So this faithful believer says, God, when you do this, when you save us, man, we're, gonna, we're going to shout and sing with unending joy, with gladness that will not, will not come to an end. We'll be overtaken by gladness, and all sorrow will flee away. You know, uh, Joy is just going to fill our heart. Reminds me of the prophet Malachi. The prophet Malachi, remember in uh, chapter 4, he talks about the day of God's judgment, how it's coming, burning like a fire, and it's going to consume the wicked, it says, not leaving them a root or a branch. But then it says in verse 2, Malachi said this, but for you who fear my name, for you in this room who fear Jesus and fear God, and by fear I mean love him, I mean, love him and trust him. Those of you who fear not, he says, he says, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out playfully jump like calves from the stall. Here's what it says, man, there's going to be such joy. We're going to be skipping like the cows. Now I have a video of us in the resurrection running into the eternal kingdom. Watch it. And one of those is Billy Rickman. Find Billy. This is us running out into the resurrection, right? Running it, running out into the kingdom of God. There he is. See him? Oh, he just went off the end over there. Actually, Billy, you could be any of those guys, right? So this is this is what is spoken of in Isaiah 51 the joy of the Lord will overtake us and we're going to be like those cows who've been cooped up all night and now they're set free and I mean, those weren't calves, man. Those are full-blown big things, right? And they were just skipping and jumping, and that's how it's going to be for us. Imagine on the day when Jesus comes, and, and, and the judgment is behind us, and, and God is inviting us into his kingdom. Imagine the joy that will fill your heart at the reality of all that you've put your hope in coming to pass. I mean, that's what he says. So then God, that's their question or their request. God, save us. Do what you've promised. Here's what God says in reply. And his reply is, here's here's my distilling God's reply. Don't be afraid. I've got you. You are my people and my salvation is coming. That, that is, I believe, God's reply. So verse 12, I, I am the one who comforts you. Who are you that you should fear humans who die or a son of man who is given up like grass? But you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the fountains of the earth. You are in constant dread all day long because of the fury of the oppressor who has set himself to destroy you. I mean, it doesn't say you there, but to destroy and destroy you. Here's God's reply. I got you. I got you. The reason why you're so desperate for me to save you is because you're so afraid. You're so afraid of the person who's persecuting you, the the fury of these people that are against you. He says, let my words comfort you. I'm the one who comforts you. And then he asked them, he says, why are you afraid of men who just die? 
Why are you, why are you afraid of men who are going to die and just going to be like grass? You know, here for a moment um, and, then, and then gone. You're constant dread of these guys. Why? He said, you have forgotten. You've forgotten the creator. You've forgotten the creator God of heaven and earth. Now, let me be quick to say this, okay? I said it last week, and I, I, I'm not pretending that I wouldn't be beyond f- afraid if I lived in Afghanistan of the Taliban killing me. I, I, would be, I would be afraid of that. If I lived in North Korea and I was a believer in Jesus, I would, I would be afraid. But here is Isaiah's telling us, God is telling us, remember who I am and don't be afraid of men who are going to die and they're going to be like grass. Don't be afraid of them. Even, even if they kill you, don't be afraid of them. Why? Because I am the creator. I am the creator. God continues, verse 13. But where is the fury of the oppressor? Where is the fury of all of these folks who want to kill you, who want to destroy God's kingdom, God's people? Verse 14, the prisoner is soon to be set free. He will not die and go to the pit and his food will, be, will not be lacking. Now, the fury and anger of those who oppose God and oppress his people, it will one day be no more. And I think God is saying here, I will restore my people. They will not die and go to the grave. I am going to raise them from the dead. God is going to provide for us all we need. I think that's what it means in verse 14. He's talking to his people and their food will not lie. God's going to provide everything we need. God just said the ungodly will die like the grass, but not God's people. Verse 15, for I am the Lord your God who stirs up the seas so that it roars, so that its waves roar. His name is the Lord of armies. I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand in order to plant the heavens and to found the earth and to say to Zion, you are my people. Here's what I think God is saying. I'm the creator and I will plant the new heavens, and it doesn't say new heavens and new earth, but just a few verses earlier, he said, the earth's going to pass away like a garment and the heavens are going to be, I don't remember what he said about the heavens, but basically he said, they're going to pass away. Here he says he's going to plant them. I think God is talking about his new age to come, his new heavens and his new, and his new earth, his new, this new kingdom that's going to be forever. He says, it's coming. And notice this, I will cover you in the shadow of my hand and you are my people. The reason why we don't have to be afraid of the person who wants to kill us is because they may kill us, but he has us in his hand and he will never let go of us. And we're going to be part of his kingdom when he plants it forever. Jesus said in verse in 1028 of the gospel of John, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me. He is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my, out of my father's hand. And I and the father are one. I think that's what Isaiah is. I used to say in Isaiah, I've got you in my hand. I've covered you in my hand. You belong to me. All right, that's the middle section. Here's the, that brings us to the third section, okay? And this third section, this third part of Isaiah 51 and 52, um, God's people have just asked God to wake up. God turns the table on them and he says to them, you wake up, (laughs) you wake up. And he's got two wake ups and then one leave, all right? So let's look at the two wake ups and then the one leave. The first wake up is this, wake up to this truth. God's wrath has passed from his people. Verse, chapter 51, verse 17. 
Wake yourself. Wake yourself up. Stand up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk the cup of his fury from the Lord's hand. You who have drunk the goblet of, to the dregs, the cup that causes people to stagger. There is no one to guide her among all the children she has raised. There is no one to take hold of her hand among all the offspring she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Devastation and destruction. Famine and sword. Who will grieve for you? How can I comfort you? Your your children have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope caught in a net. They are full of the Lord's fury, the rebuke of your God. So listen to this. Suffer and drunken one, suffering and drunken one, but not with wine. Suffering and drunken one, not suffering and drunk with wine, but suffering and drunk with God's judgment is basically what he's saying. God's saying, wake up, now listen to me. Listen to me. And, And here's what I think he's trying to say to them. God's wrath has passed from his people. Now, um, we could define his people here as, as just being, well, let's, let's talk about what he says is going to happen to them. Then he defines his people. He says they've drunk from his fury, the cup. And, and, and this cup of fury is often called the cup of God's wrath throughout the scriptures. And I think it's one and the same. They have staggered under the punishment of God. They've become drunk, but not with wine, but with his fury. Their leaders have been killed. Their destruction and devastation, famine has been their lot. Their children are no more, so no one to lead them. Their children, what, what children there are, like antelope caught in nets. And it'd be easy to say this is all about national Israel and what's going to happen to them 170 years in the future. But, but I think God is speaking to his remnant, to the true Israel, okay, and, um, and let me tell you why I, I say that. Let's, let's look at what, what he says next. This is what your Lord says, the Lord, even your God, who defends his people. Look, I have removed from your hand the cup that causes staggering, the goblet, the cup of my fury. You will never drink it again. Now, God is saying that they'll never drink from the cup of his fury, of his wrath, and again, I'm going to equate fury and wrath. You might say I'm, I've done wrong there, but when it talks about the cup of his fury and the cup of his wrath, I mean, I think those are the same. They will never drink it again. Now listen, if this is all about national Israel, what about AD 70? I mean, they're, they're going to they're gonna drink the cup of God's fury in AD 70 in a way probably that was so much worse than the Babylonian exile. Here's just a fraction of what Josephus said about what happened in Rome in AD 70. He said, when the Romans went in, I'm quoting, when the Romans went in in numbers into the lanes of the city, they, when, they, when they actually breached the wall and went down the streets of the city with their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses uh, where the Jews had fled and burned every soul in them and laid waste to great many of the rest. And when they came to houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men in the upper rooms, full of dead corpses, that is, such as died by the famine. And they then stood in horror. This is the Romans. Then the Romans stood in horror at this sight and went out without touching anything. Well, if the cup of God's fury had passed to never come again, how do you... How do you you know, what does AD 70 mean, right? And if there ever wasn't an equal to AD 70, it would probably be the Holocaust of the 1940s, right? And what happened to the Jewish people in the 1940s? They drank again, evidently, of this cup of God's fury, um, you know, at the hands of, of, 
of Germany or the hands of, of Hitler and the Third Reich. In the new covenant for God's people by faith, God promises something, however, that I think Isaiah is talking about. And, and God promises in the new covenant that his people will never drink of God's wrath. We will never have to drink of God's wrath. Other people still remain under the wrath of God. Other people will drink the wrath of God, but not his people. Here's Romans 1.18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident to them because God has shown it to them. How about Romans 2? Do, not, do you despise the riches of God's kindness, his restraint, his patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended uh, to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Yeah, I want you to notice that God's, God's righteous, excuse me, God's wrath is equated to his judgment. Which means that God's wrath and God's righteous judgment, they're one and the same. And they're to be revealed in the future. John says that God's wrath remains on everyone who refuses to walk in faith. So Paul says to the Ephesians, let no one deceive you with empty arguments. For God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. So God's wrath, that is his righteous judgment, it's real, is one day coming upon folks, but it will not come upon his faithful Israel. It will not come upon the men and women who are faithful to God through the new covenant. They'll never drink it. And why will they never drink it? They will never drink it because, because they're perfect? No. They'll never drink it because somebody already drank it for us. I mean, folks, this is the good news. This is hopefully why you're here this morning. It's because Jesus already drank of the cup of God's fury or the cup of God's righteous judgment or the cup of God's wrath. Jesus already drank it for us. And what's in the cup? You know what's in the cup? Death is in the cup. Death is in the cup. That's what's in the cup. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins is die, will die. On the morning of his death, in the wee hours of the morning, Jesus asked God to remove the cup from him. He said, I don't want to drink the cup. Lord, isn't there another way? Do I have to drink the cup of your fury? And I mean, he doesn't say fury. He just says cup. We don't, you know, but it's easy to see that the cup is the cup of God's wrath. I mean, it's just, it's very, very clear. So he says, I don't, I don't want to drink this cup. So, hey, can we take this cup? And God, God says, no, you got to drink the cup. And Jesus says, man, I'm with you. Your will be done, not mine. And Jesus drinks the cup for us and he dies for us. He drinks the cup of death for us. So God would then say that in the Lord Jesus, he, he died for us. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Isaiah says, hey, the wrath of God will never come upon you. He did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in the Messiah, those who are us who are in the Lord Jesus. God was telling his faithful through Isaiah, you will never drink the cup of my fury. You will never drink the cup of my wrath. Yes, they would go, I mean, the faithful will endure all kinds of things. 
but it won't be God's fury. It won't be God's wrath. We will never bear that. Jesus bore that for us. Verse 23, I will put it into the hands of your tormentors who said to you, lie down so that we can walk over you. You made your back like the ground and like a street for those who walk on it. Their tormentors would drink the cup of God's fury, the cup of God's wrath. They would die. By the way, this practice here that you read in verse 23, he says, where you make your back like the ground. This is a documented thing that happened to the Jews. Their enemies used them to make roads in the mud. Now, whether they were dead or alive, I don't know, but they made them lie down and then drove their chariots and walked across the backs of, uh, of God's people. Now, I think this is a good place before I move on for a takeaway. So, so, so focus. I know what time is it? 11.26. I've been talking for a while. It's easy to zone out, but I want you to focus. This is a great place for a takeaway. John 3.36 says, the one who believes in Jesus, the son, has eternal life. But the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So did you notice that? The one who rejects Jesus, though presently alive now, but he, he doesn't have, or she doesn't have eternal life. They'll not see life, future tense. They're not going to live. And why is that? Because the wrath of God remains on them. And the wrath of God is what? The judgment of God. You know, it's God's judgment. It's death. It's hell. He will be cast into the lake of fire. She will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And they will experience God's wrath. So here's my quick application for you. Is the wrath of God still against you? I mean, it's an honest question, and it's, some, it's a question we need to ask. Is the wrath of God still against you? Do you have life, or are you good with death? You know, I mean, is the wrath of God still against you? If you want to have life, then you've got to love the giver of life. You just got to love the giver of life. He, he wants to give you life. You're already on the path to death. He wants to give you life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm life. This is where life comes from. Jesus is life. He's the giver of life. It's where all life comes from. He says, listen, if you want life, come to me. I mean, if you're good with death, that's fine. So my application question, do you have life? Do you have life? Yeah. Here's the second wake up. The second wake up is wake up to this truth. God is redeeming his people. Verse chapter 52, verse one, wake up, wake up, put on your strength, Zion, Put on your beautiful garments, Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer enter you. Wake up, my people, he says, to the truth that God is saving you, rescuing, redeeming his people forever. And the ungodly will not be a part of it. Again, I, I believe if God is not, if he's speaking to the nation of Israel, how can he say the uncircumcised would, would never enter there? I think he's talking to the remnant, to the true Israel, the Israel by faith. Jerusalem, the city of God, is a metaphor for God's kingdom. And he's saying to God's people, put on your garments of white because the uncircumcised and the unclean will never enter God's kingdom. Like I said, the uncircumcised could be the Gentiles. That's a term used for, uh, for Gentiles often. But I don't think it means that here. I think the uncircumcised here and the unclean here means it's not the Gentiles. God's always wanted the Gentiles to be part of it. He's always wanted Israel, the nation, and Israel, the remnant, to be a lighthouse to all the Gentiles that they might come in, right? No, the uncircumcised here are the uncircumcised of heart. 
We're not talking about the sign of national Israel. We're talking about the sign of the true Israel, the circumcision of our heart, the removal of, of our flesh, of our old nature from, from us, right? He says the uncircumcised here and the unclean will never enter it. Here's what he's saying is, is there's coming a day in God's kingdom where only God's people are going to be a part of it. Moses said this to Israel, the nation. He said, this is Deuteronomy chapter 10. The heavens indeed, the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, as does the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord had his heart set on your ancestors and loved them. He chose your descendants after them. He chose you out of all the people as as it is today. Therefore, circumcise your hearts and don't be stiff-necked any longer. Be the true Israel that God wanted. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and great and mighty and awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality and taking no bribe. Stephen, when he's being killed, remember what he said to the Jews that were killing him? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, Paul said uh, of the Jews and the Gentiles, this is what he says in Colossians to the church of Colossae. He said, chapter two, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of the Messiah. In other words, Jesus does a work in our heart and he, and he, he circumcises our heart. He removes that old nature and gives us a new nature. He writes his new nature on our heart. Paul says to Titus, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through the Lord Jesus. Here's my point, and I know I've belabored it. Here's my point. When, when God said, the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer enter my Jerusalem, he's not talking about national Israel and, and talking about the Jerusalem of 170 years to come. He's talking about the Jerusalem of the day when Jesus returns and God's kingdom is joined with our earth and, and Jesus is king over all and we're part of his kingdom. The only folks who will be part of his kingdom are the ones who have been circumcised by Jesus and cleansed by the Holy Spirit. But we're invited in, verse two, stand up. So if, if I'm right, if this is a promise of what's to come in the kingdom to come, this is what he says. Stand up, shake the dust off yourself, take your seat, Jerusalem, remove the bonds from your neck, captive daughter of Zion. We will take our seat in the new Jerusalem. We'll take our seat in the new kingdom of God. The bonds of sin will be released from our necks and we shall shake off the dust of the first age. Verse three, for this is what the Lord says, you were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without silver. Now, now, I think that that's alluding to the fact that God is not paying for removing the nation 170 years from, from, from then. But, but if we look forward to the day when God is going to redeem us forever, he's right. We won't be redeemed with silver, but we will be redeemed with something so much greater than silver. In, uh, in 1 Peter 1.18, here's, here's what Peter says. For you, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Messiah, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. So we weren't redeemed with silver. We were redeemed by what Jesus did for us. 
The Lord continues and he gives them an example from history and he applies it to the nation and his people. He says, for this is what the Lord God says. At first, my people went down to Egypt to reside there without cause. So now what have I here? This is the Lord's declaration that my people are taken away for nothing. It's rulers wail. This is the Lord's declaration, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. The Lord says, hey, I'm, I'm declaring what's true. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, they have oppressed my nation. They, they, they have oppressed my people, both the nation and his remnant. They have oppressed my people. They have blasphemed God, verse 6. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, they will know on that day that I am he who says, here I am. Now, in a sense, here's what God says. Hey, my, my people have been oppressed and I've been blasphemed, but there's coming a day where my people will say, they'll know my name. They'll know my name and they'll say, he is here. Now, now this is, remember Isaiah's looking at least 170 years into the future when the exile will come to an end. I'm suggesting he's looking way past that 170 years and he's looking to the day when God's kingdom will be realized on earth. But there's a sense in which this day has already come because God sent his servant, the Lord Jesus, to save us and he came. He's already come. He ransomed us, he died for us. In, in, in a sense, God was saying, here I am, I am here. Now there's coming another day when we'll see the Lord Jesus come again. And every eye will see him, every knee's gonna bow, every tongue's gonna confess, and, and we're gonna say, he's here. But they've already said, he's here. He's here, he was here, and he's coming again. And when he comes again, we'll rejoice like the, like the skipping cows. Isaiah continues, speaking for God, but here's where Isaiah says, this is about us. Here's what he says, um, verse seven. And how, how wonderful this really is. God has come, Jesus has come. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, to say, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voices of your watchmen, they lift up their voices shouting for joy together for every eye will see when the Lord returns to Zion. For joyfully rejoice, they will be joyful, rejoice together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Now you could say, well, that's just about 170 years in the future when God redeems them from Babylon. But Paul says, no, this is about what Jesus did when Jesus came. This, this is quoted in Romans 10. It's about us. How beautiful are the mountain, on the mountains are the feet of you and me who herald the good news that the king has come, that he is here, that his kingdom has begun. And how great are going to be the feet of those who proclaim the news that he's coming again and that he will be here when he comes he has comforted his people. All the nations of the earth have seen this. Every eye will see it again, but they've seen it and they bow before him. So Isaiah said it, Paul applies it to us. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. How, how, wonderful, it, how wonderful it is for us to take the good news to, uh, to the world. Yahweh reigns. God, God is king. Salvation has come and it's coming. Come on, beloved. Why don't we share this news? 
Man, why isn't this on our lips? Why aren't we just bubbling over with this? Why is it that we're holding back? Did you notice what it says about the heralds, the voices, of the watchmen? The, the guys on the wall, this is an allusion to the watchmen on the wall looking for the enemies or whatever. The watchmen on the wall, they lift up their voices shouting for joy together, you know, that the Lord has come. Why, why isn't that us? Why isn't that me, right? Now, why isn't that you? Why isn't that me? Why, why aren't all of us not just bubbling over with this joy that, that Jesus has come and then he's coming. Now, when I say bubble over, I don't mean Debbie, Debbie Downer, guys. I mean, uh, no offense to any Debbies in the room. I don't mean, I don't mean be a downer. I mean, be, be somebody who's got great news to share. Jesus has come. He's rescued us. The kingdom has begun. And now we wait for the culmination of that kingdom when Jesus comes again. All right, shout, shout for Jesus. Our God reigns. Jesus is alive. Finally, finally, God has a leave, leave. He has a wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Now he has a leave, leave, verse 11. And here's his leave. Leave this world behind. Leave the system of this world and live for God's kingdom now. Verse 11. Leave, leave, go out from there. Do not touch anything unclean. Go out from her. Purify yourself, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. He's talking about people who would carry the vessel. There weren't any vessels anymore. They'd all been, they'd all been robbed and, and they didn't have any vessels anymore that I know of 170 years from now. But here, here's, what he's, he's, here's what he's saying. He's saying, and I don't think he's speaking, I said 170 years in advance. I think he's, he's speaking to us in our generation since Jesus has come and Jesus is coming. John came, I prepare the way. Jesus came. Now we're waiting for his return. And here's what he's saying. Leave, get, get out from the system of the world in which you live and live for the kingdom of God now. I believe he's looking to the new covenant. I believe he's looking to this time now that the spirit lives within our heart. And he's saying to us, leave, leave the system of, of, of the system of this world is anti my, my kingdom. Be different. Be clean. Be clean. Be holy. Man, I tell you what, Michael and I did not, um, we did not recall it, uh, talk about songs this morning. I don't know that he knew what I was going to say. Maybe he read my notes. I don't know, but. It was, if not, it was the Spirit of God just bringing the songs and the message together. Be holy, everyone. Be holy. Be clean. Be different. Don't be like the culture around you. You, you belong to a new kingdom. And all throughout, the, all throughout the New Testament, the early apostles of Jesus, the early followers of Jesus, what were they calling all of us to do? They were saying, put off, put off your old way of life. Put off your old way of life and live for Jesus. Put, put off the culture of this world and live different. You know, the world around us is filled with anger and power-hungry people and, and people who want their way and who are selfish. And man, we're told to live totally different than that. We're told to live as servants. We're told to live as preferring others as more important than ourselves. We're, we're told as, to put other people first. We're told to love our enemies. I mean, we're just told to be different. Put off, put off the culture. If any, if any man is in Jesus, he's a new creation, right? He's new. There's something new about us. There's something different. God, God has made the old things pass away. He's given new things. Just run a new path. We have a new leader. We have a new destiny. We have a new life and it's not death. Verse 12, for you will not leave in a hurry. 
Remember, he's saying, leave, leave. But you will not leave in a hurry. You will not have to take flight because the Lord is going before you and God of Israel is your rear guard. He's basically kind of saying, leave, leave. But hey, be, be clean. Go back and look at verse 11. Leave, leave. Go out from there. Do not touch anything unclean. In other words, kind of clean yourself. But then he says, hey, this isn't going to happen in a hurry. This isn't going to happen in a hurry. You're not going to take flight. It's not going to be like in the middle of the night. Okay. I think this verse is telling us that this is my opinion that this verse is trying to say to us that, hey, Jesus' return wasn't going to be just right away. It wasn't going to be like in the next week or the, obviously we know it wasn't. It's been 2,000 years, right? But, but that it's, it's not, don't be in a hurry. Just be ready. Just be ready. Be living for Jesus. Live for Jesus. Live cleanly. Live, live according to the spirit. Live according to God's commandments, right? Um, but just, just be ready. But it's not going to be in a hurry. You know, and we, we know that to be true. And why isn't it in a hurry? I guess God is patient. I told you last week or the week before that a thousand years is a day, God says to himself. So, hey, and whatever's, whatever may seem long to us may be quick to him. So whatever, he says, I, one of the places he tells Peter, I want my house to be full. Or Jesus said, I, God says, I want my house to be full. So maybe his, his, his return delays that his house might be full. I, I don't know. The first coming of Jesus came at what? The fullness of time. The fullness of time. What does that mean? That means God had planned out. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't like on a spur of a moment. It was at the perfect time Jesus came. And I suggest to you that Jesus will come again in the fullness of time. Whatever that is, whatever that looks like, God knows. But, but in the fullness of time, Jesus will come again. And here's what, here's what, Here's what God says. He says, don't be in a hurry. You'll not have to take flight because the Lord is going before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Listen, he's going before us. and He's going behind us. He's in front of us and he's behind us. No ambushes up front. No sneak attacks from behind. God's got us. Here's my wrap up. My wrap up is just really simple. It's, It's wake up. Wake up to the joy that awaits you and me. Wake up to it. Wake up to the promise of the life that God has for us. Wake up for all that God has planned for his kingdom to come. Wake up to the hope that one day all evil will be eradicated and all sin will be gone and and all evil doing and doers will be gone forever. Wake up, everyone. Leave the sin of this world behind and live for Jesus. Put your hope in him. Follow him. Love him as he has loved you. Give yourself to him. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to pastorjimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.